0: Good day to everyone. I am Nicholas of Capital Inc. and uh, I would like to welcome you all to our second uh, Jones Act uh, Forum. Uh, we are delighted to uh, have with us a great uh, uh, panel. We are actually starting this conference today with one of the most uh, interesting and dynamic and uh, uh, critical topics of the industry, the offshore wind. Uh, And as we were just talking before we uh, came uh, on live, um, this is an area that is a a tremendous uh, growth area uh, with a lot of opportunities and, of course, a lot of complexities and challenges. So I would like to uh, thank uh, Charlie Papavizas, who is the partner and chair of Maritime Practice at uh, Winston & Strong, who is going to moderate the panel, and he is one of the key sponsors of the panel. of the forum today. And Charlie is going to uh, introduce uh, our panelists who I thank very much for joining us today. Uh, Please note that you can uh, submit your questions during the panel discussion uh, and uh, Charlie and the panelists will reply to them uh, at the end of their um, uh, discussion. So Charlie, the floor is yours. Thank you to everybody for being with us today.
1: Thank you, Nicholas, and thank you again to Capital Link for putting on this event. I think it's useful for there to be an event that focuses on the Jones Act. Uh, it has its own issues, its own opportunities, its own paradigm, and it's a, it's a great thing to put on, I think, every year. And I, as you know, I've encouraged you to do something even bigger next year. We'll see how that works out. So we have we have really an all star panel uh, on offshore wind today. Uh, we have Jeff and from Crowley. Uh, we have um, Gregor Madden from DMV and Josh Shapiro from Liberty Green. Um, I, I, I think their bios are generally available, so I won't go into that. Uh, what I've asked each of them to do is to give us a few minutes about how they either see the market or their, their, their company's activities in the market, their choice. They can do both. So we'll start with Jeff and then we'll go to Gregor and then to Josh and then we'll start with some uh, uh, some more active discussion. So Jeff.
2: Charlie, thank you very much and uh, appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to speak here this morning um, on this panel. Um, so we, as far as the market is concerned, uh, Crowley is extremely bullish and in, uh, in respect to not just renewables, but also offshore wind. Um, we've been playing in the space since roughly 2016 starting out with uh, trying to charter our tugs and barges to be able to do the feedering um, that's gonna be required today for uh, installation due to the lack of Jones Act wind turbine installation vessels. In 2020, um, we decided we would wanna be more than just a tug and barge provider. And today our vision is to be a full service turnkey um, provider for the supply chain, both on construction, installation, operations and maintenance. Um, we operate under five different verticals, marine terminals, um, and on the marine terminal side, we see that as the nexus point for everything for offshore wind. And you control the terminal, you control the supply chain. Um, the second one is marine transportation, which again is utilizing our equipment to be able to do the, um, uh, the transportation of the foundations. Uh, of the components secondary steel offshore for installation. Uh, On the O&M side, which is our third vertical, the main emphasis there is our fully compliant Jones Act uh, operation known as CREST, build, own, operate service uh, operation vessels for offshore wind. Um, The fourth vertical is around uh, supply chain. So it's really about how we connect um, companies, um, underserved communities together in order to build out what's gonna be required. These could be services, these could be products to be able to support um, the the offshore wind market. And then the last one is on construction and installation. So what we like to call our small scale EPCs that could be around cable, it could be around aggregate, uh, it could be around uh, the transportation and the construction of um, offshore wind transformers. Um, I know there's a lot of people out there who are still skeptical about the market. Um, we are not. And the reason we're not is because we have won contracts. And in fact, we will get started with our first one here in May, where we will be transporting uh, via tug and barge, the offshore wind transformer for the South Fork project out of the Gulf of Mexico up to New York. Um, we will follow that up with our first feedering job, two tugs and a barge. Um, to do the transportation of the components uh, for the South Fork project as well out of New London, Connecticut. And then next year, uh, working together with Fred Olson, um, at that point will be the largest project in the United States, 98 turbines out of the New Jersey wind port. We'll be transporting those well over a year and a half time period for the purposes of doing installation. I think most people know we own and operate a terminal up in Salem with Avengrid and CIP as our anchor tenants. Um, we are in the process of finalizing a lease for 168 acres uh, on the west coast in Humboldt for supporting floating wind. We just uh, finished up on uh, an agreement with the Port of Houston for the Gulf of Mexico for 42 acres and we're in the process of trying to do the same thing in the state of New York and the state of North Carolina. I mentioned the SOV. Um, we were fortunate enough to win um, the uh, the contract with Siemens to be able to provide a 15-year charter for our first SOV to support Dominion and the Coastal Virginia project. And we'll have some further announcements, uh, hopefully in the second quarter this year, about two new um, entities that we'll be setting up in order to support uh, the construction and installation process around um, Nearshore Cable lay and then also um, offshore wind transformers, as I mentioned, construction, uh, transportation, and, uh, and installation. So all in all, uh, I think a lot of people know what we're doing. As I said, we're extremely bullish on, uh, on the market um, and, and see this as future, the next 130 years for the company.
1: That's excellent. Uh, I'm glad you're bullish. I can t- I can tell you from the uh, from my personal activity I am also bullish. Uh, I have plenty to do in the offshore wind space. So Gregor, I''m, I'm you know I'm assuming DNV's got plenty to do as well. what, what, what are you guys doing?
3: Hey thank you Charlie and, and also thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk on on the panel. Uh, DNV's had a long history in in the wind industry. Uh, we were, we were we were we got kicked off on onshore wind. You know, years ago, and then we moved into the fixed offshore wind and also the floating offshore wind. Uh, is, is a leading company in the classification for offshore wind vessels. Uh, we, we hold a significant share in classification for WTIVs and, and SOVs and, and the larger uh, vessels that, that, that will support uh, the industry. We also provide services for all our stakeholders in uh, the offshore wind industry some examples you know of our fields of expertise that we're actively engaged in in offshore wind is our advisory services where we cover decarbonization and digitalization uh, we also provide cva uh, services on for, for mandatory federal requirements uh, but we are also diversified into other things we also do technical due diligence uh, we have a software uh, division that is actively uh, involved in, in offshore wind. Uh, we also do port infrastructure assessments. Uh, we've got a team that that help people through the permit management uh, systems and all the challenges that that face. And also, we've got risk consultancy that that look at maritime challenges that we have with. With 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 ports and channels and other uh, other obstacles, and really that that that's really just to name a few. So 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 DMV is uh, fully committed uh, to be a partner in uh, in the wind industry. That's excellent, um, Josh. Um, go
1: ahead.
4: Good morning, everyone, Um, and thank you to Capital Link for putting this on and and highlighting what I think uh, all of us on this panel think is quite an interesting topic. Uh, Not only just offshore wind, but just the renewable energy sector uh, and where our entire global environment is moving towards sustainability. Um, I'm Josh Shapiro on behalf of Liberty Green Logistics. Uh, Liberty Green is a consortium approach to offshore wind. Uh, We say it's supply chain management for the offshore wind industry. Uh, This concept was born out of um, our other logistics, Vertical Liberty Global Logistics, which which is an international uh, multimodal provider uh, with a core focus on the ocean, but connecting to trucking, rail, and air freight worldwide. Uh, And so we took that approach and uh, developed a vertical within the Liberty Group of Companies uh, to support the supply chain in the United States, specifically focused on offshore wind. Uh, We currently have 24 members of our consortium uh, and they include uh, individuals that are landowners, uh, asset owners, service providers, um, everything from your uh, turnkey logistics solutions to your software solutions, including uh, marine coordination center and software providers. Um, our our view of the offshore wind market is that it's ripe with opportunity uh, for a select group of companies that have the skill set and expertise. Uh, in the supply chain management business, as well as the asset investing and Jones Act qualified capabilities to perform the services. And so like Crowley, uh, Liberty has a long history in the US flag uh, and investing in US-based opportunities. And I think that uh, within this select community, where have lots of international partners uh, that are looking to partner with all of us uh, to bring some of the expertise from Europe and Asia into the United States supply chain, um, and I think that the opportunity uh, in front of all of us is not only the um, impact on you know, making returns on investments, but it's also making an impact on our climate and our environment as our nation moves towards uh, renewable and sustainable energy.
1: Thank you. Um, so, Growley uh, and Liberty Green, you're both building vessels in the United States. Uh, you guys are in the market every day for potentially building more vessels in the United States, particularly uh, uh, in the O&M mm-hmm. side of the business, crew transfer vessels, as, uh, service operation vessels, SOVs and CTVs. So Josh, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in the market in terms of pricing, capacity, ability for U.S. shipyards to do what's necessary to build out the fleet?
4: Sure. So, so I think that Um, Overall, we all know that there is limited Jones Act capacity in all of our shipyards compared to the rest of the world, and that there are constraints and barriers of investing in the Jones Act and citizenship requirements to hold the asset um, that limit our ability to scale uh, the amount of yards that we have available to build and, of course, the amount of vessels that those yards can produce each year. That being said, uh, there is capacity, there are specific yards that have expertise to build vessels and we have been building vessels in this country for quite a long time. Um, In particular on I think the yard focus uh, area that the there are medium sized and smaller yards who mainly depend on government business. uh, And those yards often have to prioritize those long standing customers and that limits some of their capacity or capability to take on new assets. Um, And some of the larger yards, uh, while they're capable of building assets, have never built a Jones Act WTIV or a Jones Act SOV. And so we're in our first iteration of those yards and those capacities coming online. Um, And then lastly, just competition and financing. Uh, The yards have an increased cost of labor and an inflationary pressure today. Uh, And so prices are on the rise. And um, of course, uh, the liberties and crowdlies of the world have to account for that in our bids and have to pass that cost increase across to the customers, which effectively, at the end of the day, comes across to the consumer as an increased cost of producing energy.
1: Gregor, Jeff, either of you, I mean, you want to comment on on shipyard capacity and whoever wants to go first?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah my, my, my comment is that when we look at the major yards, uh, it, it looks like they've got a portfolio of military vessels, and then they've got this quasi-military commercial uh, market, and then they've got the commercial uh, market. And and offshore wind is going to be competing with these other sectors for an available an available slot. So it may come down to a commercial decision, you know, from the shipyard what what they want to build.
2: Yeah, Jeff. Yeah, Charlie, I guess I, I will add two things just kind of dovetailing a little bit on what, what Josh was mentioning. Um, I think right now, the, the biggest challenge that that we see is the complexity around the vessels that are being asked to be built. And you think about you know, the SOB that Fink and Terry is gonna do for us, highly, highly complicated um, vessel to, to build for the first time. And under, you know, as you can imagine, time restrictions to get it um, developed and and off to a Dominion in a timely fashion. So that's the first challenge that I think we face as uh, as an industry. How do we how do we get experience, and then how do we get better at, at doing it? Um, you know, the the second piece is, <clears throat> and I stress this a lot to to individuals and to companies. You know, the West Coast. is going to be a significant player in the offshore wind market. And the challenge that the West Coast faces right now is that there are no vessels out there that are gonna be able to do the work that's gonna be required. When you think about anchor handling vessels, when you think about tugboats, barges, semi-submersibles, SOVs, crew transfer vessels, none of that exists. And to complicate things further, when you look at the um, emissions rules the state of California has, and quite frankly, most likely be adopted by Washington and Oregon as well. You have to be thinking along the lines of alternative fuels in order to meet up with that criteria. So um, while we we do have a, um, I would say a dearth of of assets, we need more to be able to do the work on the East Coast. There's no doubt about it. Um, I don't want people to not uh, understand also the complications that are gonna happen on the West Coast. If they want to build out in a timely fashion, and the amount of vessels that are going to be required, and the way that's going to have to be accomplished. Uh, With
1: a, I want to re- a limited I,
2: amount of shipyards. I, w-
1: I want to return to the environmental um, aspects in a minute, but but let me ask you, Jeff, a question: Are are developers taking into account the fact that your shipyard pricing is coming in higher because of inflation and and other factors, or are or where, what do you see from the other end of it? In other words, you have to you have to. Produce a service at a price. Is right. that is that being taken into account?
2: Um, I, I think to some extent it it is. Um, it is a very challenging market. There's there's no doubt about it. I I'd love to hear Josh's you know comments with respect to CTVs. SOBs are are difficult. There is there is no doubt about it. And a lot of that does have to do with um, inflationary issues. But as much to do with, as I mentioned previously, there's a certain amount of risk in building those uh, those types of boats for the first time, and um, I, I would like to think that developers are seeing that. Um, I do feel that uh, you know the price that we won at for uh, for the Siemens bid was fair, um, and you know let's see what happens as as we move on. I'm, I'm hoping, as I mentioned previously, that um, as we become better in, in our shipyards at learning how to build these vessels, that those prices eventually will start to come down. Um, but I think right now, I, I think do think developers do understand that uh, the price is gonna come in a little bit higher in the beginning, but I believe the hope is is somewhere down the road, you know, we start going like this as we get our lessons learned. And as more shipyards have that experience to be able to build the types of vessels that are going to be required, not just tugs and barges, but some of these more sophisticated types of, uh, of ships, such as WTIBs or,
4: or SOBs
2: or alternative
4: fuel anchor handling vessels as well. Josh? So, so I would um, kind of approach this from, from kind of three themes, um, cost, risk, and return. Um, There is a substantial cost to building, as Jeff was saying, these new assets in the first generation where the yard is doing their first SOV or their first CTV in the instance of uh, the Patriot CTV that's being built at Gladding Hearn uh, for the Massachusetts Wind Project, Vineyard Wind. Um, and they might have shipbuilding experience, but they're building these new vessels with new technologies and new requirements by each developer. So each developer having their own individualized requirements makes each vessel customized for that developer. That adds to the overall cost of the project. Risk. Um, the risk of building in certain yards and the limited availability to either bond or give refund guarantees, unlike the international yards that can give a full refund guarantee supported by an Export-Import Bank. Um, And the other risk of the construction period and actually delivering on time, especially in the CTV market, a lot of the CTVs being constructed are delayed. I'm pleased to report that our CTV is not delayed. Um, And the ability to deliver on time directly impacts day-to-day operations and also has a massive cost component to it. Um, And so that's another area between both the risk of delay and the risk of refund guarantee that has to be considered. Um, And then in the third area that I would focus on is return. And this gets more into the developer side, but given the complexity structure of cost and risk in the Jones Act, there is a certain return profile that we expect in the United States investment market. And so the developers ability to give long-term stable and secure employment allows pricing from a day rate perspective to come down uh, and allows uh, investors to receive either traditional commercial lending or private equity support. Uh, but when we see short-term contracting uh, it with the cost to build these vessels and the risk associated with it, short-term contracting makes it extremely challenging for people to execute. Uh, And that comes back to, they need a larger return uh, for a short-term contract. And so when you add these three components of cost, risk and return, these add to some of the complexities of making the investments. That being said, once these investments are made and once these assets are floating and operational, uh, I think both Jeff and I would agree that we see a ripe opportunity moving basically uh, from Maine straight through down the East Coast into the Gulf and eventually the West Coast as well uh, for projects and uh, redeployment opportunities. It's a, it's a question of can you get over that initial cost, risk, and return perspective to get in the market.
1: Gregor, uh, you, you, can, you can comment on developers, but why don't you – but you can also – I would expect you to comment a little bit about emissions, uh, West Coast requirements, uh, or maybe generally, you know, where – the vessel market is going to have to move in terms of emissions.
3: Yeah, I think I think particularly uh, there's been a, there's been a fair bit of uh, you know, discussions you know on on environmental regulations you know just just you know across across the board and and the whole industry you know if 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 you're required to be compliant to a flag then you have no choice but to but to meet those uh, regulations. Uh, there's been a fair bit of discussion with California and uh, and particular concerns I, that I think that, that, that we do have like, if we look at California, it's going to be floating wind is, is what, what the main market is. And the types of vessels that floating wind would, would bring in would be typically like anchor handlers. And then if we look at the market on the anchor handlers, a lot of these anchor handlers are pretty old. There has been new anchor handlers built over the past three years. Most have been international though. I'm not really aware of of very much a Jones Act uh, coming out. And to mix into it, the the size of the chain they're talking about would would mean that an existing anchor handler not only would need to modify their handling capability, it would probably also have to probably re-engine to to meet uh, a potential EPA uh, regulation, which is going to cost more cost, and it's going to be a longer time for payback to those, those management companies, which kind of doesn't make it so attractive uh, as it was when, when first people started talking about floating, floating. Sure.
1: Um, so we talked a little bit about shipyards. What about the existing fleet and repurposing the existing fleet? Uh, what, what role can rebuilt vessels, repurposed vessels play in this, in this mix? Uh, Jeff,
2: you have some views on that? I do. Um, You know, that's one of the things, Charlie, that we look at first when we start to think about building out our fleet. How do we potentially repurpose existing assets um, to do things a little bit more efficient before we decide that we're going to go out and, um, you know, build something brand new? And so that can be underutilized barges or, um, you know, again, barges or boats that, uh, that are going off charter and, and maybe they don't have the amount of utilization that they had previously. How can you work that out in order to support some of the different projects that we are, we are looking at right now? I will add that um, you know, one of the things I'm really excited about is the fact that Candy's has won you know, the CSOV bid um, up here in the Northeast. I think that's outstanding. And I'm really rooting for their success because if they can prove that uh, they're gonna be able to do that work, it really opens the door for a lot of others here in the United States um, to be able to prove to developers over in Europe that we do have a fleet that is more than capable if retrofitted to be able to provide the services that are gonna be required to support the wind market.
1: Josh, do you have a view on repurposing?
4: Yeah, so I think there's an opportunity to uh, use either existing assets or repurpose existing assets. Um, You know, one of our consortium members, um, which is North Star Marine, has actually been successful uh, in acquiring and converting OSV vessels under contract. Um, As well, and to one of Gregor's comments, uh, as well as acquiring and uh, is looking at deploying anchor handling vessels. Of course, there are some challenges with the California emissions, but um, that's, again, some of the power of our consortium and our turnkey services coming to using existing assets or modifying them, including trying to comply with uh, future environmental regulations. Overall, though, I think that while it's great to look at repurposing assets, I think that that's only gonna be viable at the beginning phases or the initial phases of offshore wind. And what we see at the, on the Liberty side is that the tenders are not really designed around the use of repurposed assets. And so because of the limited availability of assets, developers are having to entertain that, but their true long-term desire, especially as we decarbonize is to have custom built or specific built purpose assets uh, that meet their standards. Uh, And I also think that there's a large influence in the market on the pricing of the oil and gas market and the interest that individuals have to convert their assets. And so, for example, as we've seen, the price of oil significantly increase related to both the Russia-Ukraine war, but also the overall global uh, demand you're probably seeing less interest for uh, an owner to take their asset out of service to look for a conversion contract for what is likely a short period of time versus taking active and gainful employment today. Uh, And so maybe if we see a a repricing of crude oil and we see a drop in the utilization in the Gulf of Mexico, you might see more eagerness and willingness to do that. Uh, But this has a direct impact on the availability of assets that are capable of being taken out of service for, dep- uh, for deployment. Um, and so that, I think that that's uh, another factor here. It's not that they're not uh, capable of being used. I think uh, in Europe, they started with using oil and gas assets uh, at the early days, but today it's almost all purpose-built assets and we will likely follow the same trend in America.
1: Well, yes, purpose-built assets today. What about the future? Is it is it possible that we'll wind up with a CTV spot market in North America? Do you guys foresee a CTV spot market in the future? Anybody can take that one.
4: So I guess I'll start with this one. So (laughs) I think uh, just going to repurposing assets, it's extremely difficult in the CTV space, which is the crew transfer vessels, how the technicians get to the turbines for the audience uh, to, Use a a crew boat or a supply boat that they don't meet the speeds and capabilities that the developers need in order to get to the turbines. So repurposing some of those assets is a short-term solution, uh, but the efficiency of a newly built or purpose-built CTV and the speed it can travel uh, will require uh, those vessels to be prioritized based on both emissions consumption and also uh, servicing, you know, the the turbines each day. Regarding demand for the CTV market. We believe that there is likely going to be a spot market that will develop, but that market will not develop for some years to come because you need uh, the investment capability to undertake or the contracting to undertake the investments uh, in it, whether it's a ten million dollar asset or a hundred million dollar asset. Most uh, you know thoughtful investors are not just going to play uh, the Speculation game here. They're looking for contracted employment. But just to that, I think there's already an existing or or the creation of a secondary market. I wouldn't necessarily call it a spot market. And that is that while the primary focus is on serving developers and OEMs in their CTV needs. The uh, secondary market is that the installation contractors need CTVs to get their people out to their vessels. And so there is an opportunity to, for short- term deployment in what I would call a secondary market. It's not necessarily a spot market yet.
1: Um, let's let's turn a little bit to a little more general topic, which is what what's the what's the biggest bottleneck in the, at least the marine side of the market? the, the marine side of the, of the supply chain. you know, is it is it shipyards? Is it people? Is it terminals? What's what's the bottleneck? What do you what do you say to that, Gregor? What's the biggest bottleneck that the that the U.S. market offshore wind market faces?
3: The biggest bottleneck that we're seeing at the moment is the delay in the supply chain, and and we saw it. It became worse during during COVID. It wasn't good before COVID, and became worse during COVID. But from what we can see is uh, you know those key components that that are required to to build the ship, whether that's that steel or the main engines or the propulsion system, uh, that that that's what we are seeing just now as the main as the main bottleneck.
2: Jeff. Yeah, I mean I'll take this as for the overall industry, Charlie, and, and um, you know I know Josh has heard me say this before. <laughs> I used to worry about you know. Is it, was it terminals? Was it vessels? Was it people? And, and you know my realization is, especially as I spend a lot of time out in California, um, workforce is key. And we don't have enough trained individuals to be able to do all of the different uh, jobs that are gonna be required to keep this industry not only stood up, but running for the future. Um, and I was chatting with somebody yesterday at a conference in New York, And I I truly believe this, there there needs to be an outreach now to young people like in sixth grade on up because those are really the folks, those are the individuals who are gonna drive this industry moving forward to let them know there is a great opportunity um, to be able to work in, uh, in a good paying industry that's gonna be sustainable for many, many years to come. But if we don't establish the right training centers, Uh, if we don't establish the proper curriculum, uh, if we don't set up the proper certification programs, if we don't go out into um, underserved communities and to be able to recruit, uh, we're gonna have a problem because you can have all the terminals ready to go and you can have all the boats and barges and and other vessels ready to go. But if you don't have the ability to man them, if you don't have the ability to um, have people uh, on your yards who are going to be able to run those operations for construction and maintenance. I, I'm really not sure how you're going to get this, uh, this industry up and
4: running in a timely fashion. So I, I would agree with Jeff. Um, I'll focus on two areas. So just on the workforce area, he's completely <laughs> correct. Um, on the Liberty Green side, uh, in our consortium, we've partnered with Atlas Professionals, which is a workforce development group that's got uh, that's internationally recognized and has experience in offshore wind in Europe. Uh, and we've been working with them to try and develop um, an, an offshore wind workforce development program. We've also partnered with SUNY Maritime, uh, one of the state maritime academies in New York, in sponsoring the development of a... Uh, digital training course to get exposure and outreach for people that maybe can't go back to school, but can take an online course uh, related to offshore wind. And that's soon to be released in the upcoming months. Um, and, and I think overall, Jeff is completely correct. We, we can have assets, but if we don't have people to move the assets, no goods and cargo get delivered and no turbines get installed. So that is definitely one of two areas I would say is a bottleneck. The second area I would focus on is more related to asset investments. Um, And that is basically firm contracting periods. So I believe that as the developers and BOEM makes more awards, we will also be able to um, see a a further interest in contracting assets that have long-term employment associated with them. And so the more awards and more turbines that each developer gets awarded, the more they can extend contract cover. And I think one of the largest bottlenecks that we're seeing now is the challenge of making the investment for a one or two year firm contract period with the hope that you'll have a gainful redeployment thereafter. And that uncertainty is limiting the amount of SOVs you see uh, invested in, is uh, driven certain companies away from making Jones Act WTIV investments, um, and is also limiting some of even the speculation in the CTV market. and so. Uh, term and contract period at gainful rates is one of the other areas I focus on bottlenecks. Um, And um, just to kind of wrap this back to the workforce development, we we do need people. um, We need people that not only are committed to the industry for a voyage, we need people that are committed to the industry from the K through 12 outreach, um, as well as people that have existing licenses that are willing to leave their current sector and move into uh, the offshore wind or renewable sector. And uh, Liberty is also working in the unionized segment um, with the ILA and the SIU in promoting that workforce development as well.
1: So so we have several questions from the audience and I and I want to take at least one of them. So I'll, I'll read it. How soon before developers, OEMs, and Tier 1 suppliers request Jones Act waivers to meet their needs? How can U.S. maritime industry fend this off with solutions without long-term commitments needed to su- support domestic builds? Anybody wanna take that?
4: Charlie, aren't you the perfect person to answer that question?
1: (laughs) Well, first of all, I would say a Jones Act waiver is impossible because the way the law has been constrained and constrained again and constrained yet again, Mm -hmm. you you can only get a 10-day waiver or it has to be in connection with a military operation. So a meaningful Jones Act waiver today means a change in the law. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a remote possibility that is the basic answer and doesn't and doesn't require a lot of work Um uh, anybody want uh, to add to that
3: yeah i think i think charlie i think like you know you and we we, we start talking about the wtivs you know, before anybody built a wtiv everybody was talking about oh you know maybe we're going to get a waiver and like nothing moved on a waiver and and somebody went ahead and started building a wtiv but the industry then started looking at what other alternatives were there and then that's when the feeder barge option came into play. And then people said hey we we can make this work well let's go with the feeder barge and then maybe we can just use international wti and wtivs so 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 and i think i think the industry will develop around this because i i got some feedback from the gulf coast yards and when they were talking about you know starting out doing the osvs for jones act you know they had to start working towards making it work you know, where that was looking at a more simpler design, trying to reduce costs, trying to reduce time, but but being able to deliver the vessel. And and, and I do think that that maybe with the Jones Act, it it will start pushing people towards, you know, looking to how how you can make things better or make it work.
1: Jeff, did you want to add anything on that?
2: Yeah, I I mean, I, I think that the most challenging thing right now uh, Charlie is, you know, what will be the success of the feedering process? Um, if if Crowley and, and FOSS are able to do this in a timely fashion, and most importantly, well, you know, no injury um, to, to crew members um, or people working on board barges, I think we're gonna be fine. We, we have a lot to learn over the coming next four to six months. Um, but I think we've got a good plan uh, in place. Um, I know that we, as Crowley have worked very long and hard um, at uh, devising a technical solution with both Van Ord for this year and with Fred Olson for next year. Um, I'm well aware that Foss has done the same with Deme. So so let's see how it plays all out. I, I'm I am more concerned, Charlie, that you know, ramifications may occur if there isn't um, an effective solution yeah. as in feedering, then I am with trying to get everything taken care of if feedering is a solution. Because I do believe there's enough assets on the foreign market to be able to do that. And some of the other solutions that are out there, like the Blue Tech solution that's right. been proposed and, and also uh, you know, the Mersk solution as well. Yeah,
1: I, by the way, I'm in complete and total agreement, agreement with you that we need to see how the feeder solution actually works in practice because there's a lot of issues that aren't necessarily fully baked. Uh, So we have only a couple minutes. I'll give you each a minute and answer the following question, which is, are you, and Jeff, you've kind of already done this, so you just need to reprise. Are you bullish or pessimistic about the maritime market, uh, the offshore wind maritime market? Gregor?
3: you' You definitely put me on the spot there there,, there Charlie. <laughs> I, 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 I think we' we're, we're we're optimistic about the industry. yeah, we we feel it's it's going to be an exciting uh, exciting industry and full of opportunities. yeah. so I, I would say that DMB was optimistic.
2: Jeff. Charlie, I'll say it again. Uh, we're all in. i um, you know I've been forty five years with Crowley, and uh, I've done on a lot of different jobs. I have never been more excited uh, about a position that I take within the organization um, in helping grow out what I think is is going to be one of the strongest energy producing um, organizations and industries that we have ever, ever seen. And I am truly excited to be at at the starting gate to be able to do that with folks like uh, with Gregor and yourself and Josh as well. It's a very, very exciting time.
1: Josh, you got the
4: last word. I'm the last to go, so I'll keep it short and brief. Um, obviously we're optimistic. Uh, that's why we are all here. And that's why we've all taken the time to hire the people and begin to make the investments that are necessary to build out this business. Um, and for anyone who's interested that's uh, in the audience, uh, we're all available for follow-up. Uh, and I'm sure Capital Inc. can get you in touch with us, whether that's capital providers, asset owners, or collaborators.
2: Are you speaking for me, Josh? As well, <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, man.
1: Well, Nicholas, I see you. You're there to wrap us up, and that's good because uh, I think we're we're done. And thank you very much to the panelists. I really enjoyed the discussion, and I thought it was very informative. Thank you again. All right, well,
0: thanks, Charlie. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, many thanks from me as well. Great discussion, and I have to say we had tremendous attendance. Um, In closing, I'd like not only to thank everybody, but also to remind you that this will be available for replay upon demand within a couple of hours. And uh, also, you can address any questions at webinars at CapitalLink.com, webinars at CapitalLink.com. And then we will uh, fill them out to the panelists so, so they can get back to you. And again, thank you to everybody.
2: Thanks again. All right. Thank you.